So a couple of years back, my dad got into Ancestry.com. Anyone? I, I don't know why. But he's like tracing back the generations of the Fowlers. And I forget how far back he got, but it was definitely early 1800s. And when what became the Fowlers were, came into America and how they migrated out of mostly South Carolina into like, like awarded some random plot of land in, in Georgia. And like, how on earth do you get from South Carolina to Georgia in a wagon or whatever? And, you know, some of them are in Alabama. And he's got all these little stories along the way. And sometimes there's like an immigration record or um, he's gone to like some, some uh, cemeteries and found grave markers of like four and five generations ago that, that are up towards Augusta. And it's like super fascinated by it. And he'll tell us and he'll, he'll send us a little email and there's like a picture you know, a black and white photo of somebody in the family, and like, okay, that's good. I'm, you know, I, I treat it about like you treat the genealogies of the Bible that we're looking at today. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. I'll humor you, but yeah, whatever. But today, we're kind of looking at the Ancestry.com of Jesus, and along the line, there's going to be some stories that stand out that go into who Jesus is and where he comes from. There's going to be some markers that we get to identify with uh, as we walk through it. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 looking at the long road to Christmas, looking at the origin story of Jesus. How did we get from last week the promised prophecy of the Son of God being born? How do we get from last week the promised prophecy of light piercing the darkness in a son being born who would be the wonderful counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace that, that will hold the government of the entire world for eternity, how do, how do we get from there to a manger stall? And that's what we'll be looking at in Matthew chapter 1. And so there's a few overarching things that I want you to see about this genealogy before I read it. And so there, there's three components, I think, that, that form the background of this passage. The first one is that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. All along the way, God intersects people at key moments, and he visits them, and when he visits them, he makes promises to them, and then when he makes promises to them, he traces that promise out from them from there, and it's the most improbable thing that this could ever happen. It's the most improbable thing that these people that we're going to look at in this story could carry such a promise and not lay it in the dirt and fail, lay it in the dirt and, and it be extinguished in any given generation. That the outside pressures of slavery and enemies and killing firstborns, they don't just extinguish this. Like this is a nothing people that he's making promises to. It's a nothing people that are carrying the hope that all the nations would one day come uh, and be blessed by this promise and through a nothing people that's inside and outside of slavery inside and outside of faithfulness inside and outside God has made promises and in a way that only God and sovereign power could he keeps those promises through generations of success and failure danger and triumph the second thing that we see is an overarching point is God is working an eternal global plan of redemption God is working out an eternal global plan of redemption. What promise did he really make? A redemption that would come and fill the earth and touch every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. And so all the way back from the beginning, Satan tempted and brought mankind into the fall. And then all the way back in Genesis 3, God made a global promise 
that from the offspring of Eve, from the offspring of the mother of all living, would come one that would be crushed in his heel. He would be wounded. But it ultimately would crush the head of the serpent. That everything Satan just unleashed on the world, he would undo it. He would destroy it. He would end its work and its dominion. And so from there, like, we get to Abraham, and he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And then when we talk about Isaiah, the suffering servant, which we know of as Jesus now, the suffering servant, it's too little for me to redeem one little nation of Israel to you. Your sacrifice is too valuable. Your sacrifice is too precious. I am going to make you a light to the Gentiles so that your salvation would reach the end of the earth, and you would have an inheritance from all the people. And then we see that playing itself out through the New Testament work of Jesus. We see the gospel in Acts going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We see that as our Bible closes in the book of Revelation. And gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping Jesus, is a, is a massive multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. God has always had a global plan, and God has always had an eternal plan. He was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth. He's had an eternal plan of redemption that always was global in its scope. It was never meant to be limited to a nation. And then the third theme that I think you see in this is the theme of it is a global plan of redemption for all kinds of people. See, the Jews had a problem with anybody that wasn't Jewish, but they also had a problem with anybody that wasn't super religious also. And so the good news is for people like us, the good ones, the good guys. The good news is for people like us, the moral and upstanding ones. The good news is for people like us that keep all the religious traditions. And what this genealogy shows us is that the gospel is radical enough to reach the very outskirts of lostness, not simply the good, religious, fit the mold kind of lostness. And, and one of the ways we, we know that is as we read this genealogy, it's a selective genealogy. It's not every generation from Abraham to Jesus. They, there's intentional left out so that they can get the pattern of numbers going through. It's a selective genealogy, which means when any time the pattern gets broken, there's one of those stories there that you want to stop and look at. And we're going to get to stop and look at all of them, but, but there's a story there, and that story there is, is on purpose. And the stories that Matthew includes that I would have left out, and quite frankly, if you had written this, you would have left it out. Like, you don't talk about those family members, right? We just kind of keep them to the side. But the patterns he breaks, he breaks for people like forgotten women who have been left alone. He, he, he breaks it in for for lack of a better word, prostitutes. He breaks it in for people that, that are, are Gentiles and foreigners. He, he breaks the pattern in these ultra-exceptional places because it's a global plan of redemption for all kinds of people, not just the kinds of people we think are cleaned up enough or moral enough. So let's read as we hear these threads come together. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, 
and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that you're a God who draws near. Thank you that we can come and worship, not to be struck down in the presence of a holy God, but as Micah said, to be welcomed, to have grace extended to us from a holy God. Grace that was costly and blood-bought and bearing a cross, grace as deep as our need. And so, Father, I pray that as we gaze at this path to Christmas, Lord, we could see the amazing, sovereign, wonderful power of our God unfolding through the centuries. And we could see ourselves, the kind of people that needed rescue, the kind of people you came for. Lord, I pray for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um. So God's Christmas plan flows through and to broken people. God's Christmas plan throws fl- <laughs> flows through. I can read all those names and can't say flow. Flows through and to broken people. Uh, so we start with the era of Abraham, and it's a saga of the honorable, the scoundrels, and the sinners. The era of Abraham is a saga of the honorable, scoundrels, and sinners. And so like, what kind of God do, do we serve? Right. What kind of God are we dealing with here? And just, just one example that comes to mind is he's the kind of God that visits a 75-year-old man with a barren, I forget if she's 10 years or 5 years, I'm going to 65-year-old wife, older than a lot, most of us in this room, way past, and he's like, I'm going to make a nation of people out of you. And then he does it. The kind of God that can walk into situations that are utterly impossible, make a promise, and fulfill a promise. The kind of God that can walk into the most disaster of a situation, the most broken of a situation, the most hopeless of a situation, the most impossible of a situation, and simply by his presence, he can do what is impossible. He can restore what is unrestorable. He can mend what is is so hopelessly broken that it couldn't be mended, mended again. So what kind of God do we serve? One of the hardest things that you will ever do in this life, especially as you accumulate some years of time in your life, is to remain a hopeful person. 
right? It's just too easy. You get disillusioned too much. You get disappointed too much. You walk through life, and it doesn't work out the way you thought it would. And you walk through life, and you face loss, or you walk through life, and you face a broken relationship that you thought was, was, was going to last forever, or you walk through life, and somebody massively disappoints you that you respected and appreciated. The hardest thing, one of the hardest things that we can do in this life is remain hopeful. The easiest thing to do is let's just go numb, right? Don't expect much, and you'll never be disappointed. But how do we remain a hopeful people? Christmas allows us to face the real world with real loss, real pain, real disappointments, real not working out the way we thought in some major ways. It allows us to be realists and allows us to be hopeful that God is at work and he's the kind of God that can put things together that are beautiful in ways we could never think that this could ever be beautiful again. He's the kind of God who is at work, and when he's at work, things can happen that are so far beyond our ability to even imagine they could work out. And we can live with hope because that God's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to make everything right. So let's look at at the text. One of God's very names is the God of hope, and Christmas frees us to be real and to be hopeful. As we, as we look at the text, Matthew opens up his book, and he's like, so why is chapter 1 there? Why does he start with a genealogy? Of all the things Matthew could do to get your attention like a good author does, he begins with a genealogy, and he tells us why in verse 1. Look, this is the book of the genealogy. That is literally the book of Genesis, the origins of Jesus, not just the genealogy of Jesus. There's another word for that. This is, this is the origin story of Jesus, and In that origin story of Jesus, Matthew wants to accomplish two things. He wants to accomplish that this is the legitimate heir of David. He's the son of David. And he wants to establish this is the legitimate heir of Abraham. And so David is the, you know, God came to him. He'd made one of those special promises called a covenant. He opened up that that one day this forever king that we know of as Messiah or Christ would come from him. And, And we'll get to that in the second era. But in the first era, Abraham, like, why do we need to know that Jesus comes from Abraham? That's in the Old Testament. Like, I don't read that because it's not applicable enough to me. So, so like, why would I go back to Genesis and care that Jesus is from Abraham? Well, if you, if you look with me in Genesis chapter 12, one of the first big promises or big covenants in Scripture come to a man named Abraham. Abraham's an idol worshiper. Abraham's a pagan Gentile at the time. Abraham's off in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's got his family gods, and he does what his family does, and he's good. He's, he's kind of wealthy, doesn't have any kids, can't have any kids, And God breaks into his little ordinary life. And he says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you barren, childless Abraham and and Sarah. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, what is God's promise to Abraham? You're going to have a nation of people come from you. What is the promise to Abraham? There's going to be a land attached to this because a nation needs to have a land. But what's also attached to this? The way people interact with you 
is going to invite the way I interact with them. If people bless you and give you the proper honor as my people, I'm going to bless people like that. And the people that dishonor you, I'm going to curse. Now, you may have read in the headlines that there's a little conflict going on in Israel, and it's not new. But one of the things that, that to me, because this is probably the third cycle of this, at least since I've been alive, something's different this time in America. We're cheering for the terrorists against Israel. Now, I'm not saying everything Israel does is right. They're a nation, and they screw stuff up too. But anti-Semitism is celebrated and protected within our country. Now, this is Chris's interpretation. It has nothing to do with it. Here we go. You just get to listen to me. I mean, you can always run out. It's okay, screaming. Why is it that, like, the national news doesn't care what's going on in the Sudan? That's a tribal conflict. Why is it we don't care what's happening in Bosnia or Serbia or these other places, but the entire world has an emotional hatred for this little people called Israel? And I believe that it is because Israel is God's set-apart people. Now, yes, they have been set aside for a moment. It's the time of the Gentiles. The gospel's here. I don't believe God's done with the nation of Israel. They're going to have to look on him whom they've pierced. There's going to have to be an inflowing of Israel into the Messiah, Jesus. But they are still Genesis 12 kind of people. If you bless them, I'll bless you. And if they dishonor, why is there their absolutely unproportional hatred of Israel? Because they are belong to God's people. And why is it that the further we as a culture and nation get from God, the more hatred spurs up from a, a people that, that like, there's no reason to hate them or like them. Like, be neutral if you want. But to actually have rising hatred against a people like this? Because there's a spiritual underpinning to the hatred. There's a spiritual underpinning to the conflict. No, I'm not saying they're godly and perfect, right? But God set his name upon them. And the world hates, and Satan hates, anything God has put his name on. I'll bless those who bless you. Okay. End of the rant. But I do think it's worth thinking about. Okay, I'll bless those who bless you. What is the ultimate thing that, that why, do, why does Jesus need to come from Abraham? What's the ultimate thing we're looking for? Not that. From you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right, that there will be this movement from this little people of Israel to the nations of the earth as far as they go, as far as they're flung out over the earth, that there will be this blessing that undoes the cursing from Genesis 3 to extend blessings to everyone. And so God's plan of redemption is, is to go to all of the nations. Right? And so that's why it's here, and that's why he connects it. And that's the overall point of the section through perilous times and through, through kind of the most difficult of circumstances and so many opportunities for this to fall flat and fail, God is walking out his promises to bless the nations. But since this genealogy is selective, and since this genealogy, when it breaks the pattern, it's a story worth telling. Let's look at a few of those stories. Because it's, it's interesting what they include that we probably wouldn't. And so you, you, you get to pretty quick, you run into this guy named Judah, Genesis 49. All, all these blessings come out of Abraham, I mean out of Jacob, onto the 12 tribes. But he blesses Judah in a special way. And he's like, Judah, you're going to be a lion. 
and, and, and the scepter, the ruling staff, is not going to depart from you. So the promises are going through Judah now of a ruling king. And you're going to hold place until the one it really belongs to comes and takes it, right? The ruler is going to come and he's going to take his staff, the one, the one you're just kind of place holding it for. So we get Judah, and then what happens immediately? Judah, like he's got the promises. Surely this is going to go well. He has four sons. The first son is so evil, God kills him and leaves a wife behind that is childless. And in Israel, if there's a childless wife and there's brothers, you have to raise up a child for your lost brother. So his line isn't cut off. Well, the second son marries her, but he doesn't want to do that. And so he tricks and deceives and lets you have the imagination of how you go about doing that. But he refuses to raise up an offspring, and God kills him. Well, the third son is so young that he can't possibly do anything, but he's like, hey, if you'll wait 10 years or so and until he's old enough, we'll, we'll take care of the problem. Well, they don't take care of the problem. They let the third son go off and marry someone else and do his own thing. And so we have a woman left on the outskirts, childless, familyless, no support. And this is in the Bible. She's out there, and she realizes Judah is coming to her area, so she dresses herself as a woman of the night and pretends to be a woman of the night, and Judah decides he wants to indulge a woman of the night. And so she takes his signet ring as pledge for payment later, and what happens happens, and she's found as pregnant. And Judah's like, we're going to go kill this girl. How could my daughter-in-law possibly be this immoral? And she's like, well... Whoever's ring this is, that's who got me pregnant. And so now we have a little bit of family tension at the Christmas dinner table because, you know, you can do the math of who is what. I mean, if I'm writing the story, we leave her out, right? I mean, you can read about her, but let's don't bring it up in Matthew, right? But this woman who was left, isolated, who made an immoral choice in response to a bunch of immoral choices, becomes part of the weaving of the line of Messiah through this means. How could God keep a promise like he's keeping through people like this? And yet he does. And then you fast forward through the generations and you find in verse 5 a guy named Salmon. And you've probably never heard of Salmon. I don't think he's mentioned much in the Bible at all. He, He might get passing mention in a couple of genealogies. But Salmon has a wife you've heard of. And here we go again. One of those things I wouldn't put in there, but he's one of the five women that get mentioned by Matthew, each of which have a very special part in in the stories they're a part of. And so Salmon marries a woman named Rahab. Anybody familiar with Rahab? She is also known as Rahab the harlot. She's also known as the Gentile who lived in Jericho, you know, where the walls came tumbling down. Well, she's that Rahab. And so she welcomes in the spies of Israel, and she, she, she reports to them, like, everybody is terrified everywhere because they know God's giving you this land, and, and they know what's about to happen. But something was different about Ruth. She wasn't terrified and fighting it. She was fearful of the God of Israel and believed and in her faith, she preserved herself. In her faith, she preserved her household. And when Israel tumbled the walls down, they came in and they first got her and her family, got them to safety. Well, Salmon's just a good Jewish guy. And something about the story of Rahab captures his heart and mind. And he marries the former harlot. 
And not only does he marry the former harlot, he's in the line of Messiah. It's selective what he included. And so women like this, men like this, people like this are folded into the line of Messiah because people like this are who the Messiah's salvation is really coming for. The extent of lostness is wrapped into this genealogy because the extent of lostness is being portrayed through these stories as to what Messiah is up to. Well, she starts having children with Solomon, right? In a good way. And Solomon and her have a child, and who, who is their child? A guy named Boaz. You may not know Boaz, but if you've read Ruth, you know Boaz. Boaz is a good dude, just minding his business. He's got some good land. He's a fairly well-off guy. He's bobbing along with his life and everything's good. And then this Moabitess, meaning a Gentile foreigner named Ruth, he looks out over his field one day. He's like, ah, I think that's Ruth. I've heard about Ruth. Ruth loved her mother-in-law so much that she left her people, right? Ruth, Ruth bound herself to the God of Israel. He's heard about how honorable she is, that she would sacrifice everything to go with her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi. And and so he's like, yeah, you make sure to leave her alone. Make sure nobody bothers her. And then if you go back in the story, well, why is Ruth gleaning anything? Because Naomi left uh, Bethlehem, or, or left the, the land of Israel, left the place of bread to go out into this country. And she left with two sons, and she left with a husband. And she came back with zero husband and zero sons. And she releases one of her daughter-in-laws, go try to make a life for yourself. Don't follow me. I'm old and I have nobody that I can give you to take care of you. And Ruth's like, I'm not going anywhere. There's this honorableness to Ruth. There's this this loyalty of Ruth to her mother-in-law. And they go back into Israel. And and do you know how Naomi wants to be known? Don't call me my name anymore. Just call me bitterness. My life is so tragic and so undone and so hopeless that I just want to be known as bitterness. Bitterness. And yet Ruth sticks with bitterness. Ruth supports bitterness. Ruth loves and binds herself to bitterness, and bitterness is God. And as she's gleaning a field, the unlikely guy Boaz sees her. And as she reports back, Naomi's like, wait a second. He's actually a relative close enough to redeem you, to marry you and raise up a name for me and my family again. And now this hopeless situation, she's met Boaz She marries Boaz, and they have a child. And when they have a child, all the women surround Naomi, and they're like, this will be the restorer of life to you. This child will be a name for you, and this daughter-in-law is better than seven sons ever could be to you. Hopeless and bitter has become restored from the faithfulness of this Gentile girl named Ruth, who simply was loyal and simply was honorable in dealing with her. And do you know what happens from this Gentile woman who, who has brought hope back to the hopeless and, and, and through her has unbittered the soul of her mother-in-law? Well, a couple generations later, her great-grandchild or so is called Jesse. Right? Well, who's Jesse? David, the king's dad. So this woman, through, through simply sticking it out, becomes the great-great-something grandmother of David the king, the one to whom the next big promise gets made. And so, as you're thinking through these stories, you're thinking through, how could that person get included? And I hope you you might just cross your mind that 
wow, how could I be included? Or you're thinking through this story and you're like, wow, what an amazing story of walking through the bitterness of life and not giving up and God restoring a hope and a wholeness that couldn't possibly come, but it came anyways because he's that kind of God. And you're thinking, wow, I can walk through this life with all of its darkness and I don't have to lose hope because of it. And so that you're reading a genealogy just like that because we have a Savior that is like this. We have a Savior for people like this. We have a God that can bring beauty out of the most burnt down ashes. And so we can face with eyes wide open the hardship and the pain and the loss of this world with hope. So let's look at the second era. The next era is the era of David, right? Hope diminishes. Hope fades uh, hope fades as kings fail, but pockets of faithfulness remain. So the era of David, hope fades as kings fail, but pockets of faithfulness remain. So is anybody excited that it's an ele- Don't answer, because you might be. Here's what I'm looking forward to for the next year. Every radio station, every Spotify ad, because I don't have premium, and every TV show I watch, it's going to be political ad, political ad, political ad, political ad, political ad, for like a year, wall to wall. And I can't imagine it's going to get better, probably going to get a little worse this cycle. And that's what we get to look forward to. Happy 2024 to you. Enjoy it, right? And, and, And one of the problems is like, these elections have real consequences on the real lives of people, right? You're, you're living in some of that, and you can look back over one administration or two or five or ten, and you're living in some of the consequences. Like, it's not nothing what politicians do. It has a real impact on our lives. But the problem is this. Our hope, our emotional well-being, and our spiritual lives rise and fall based on what's going to happen in this next election, That that if things turn out the way we want, then I am now elated and life is going to be good and everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be. And if it doesn't go good, by my definition, then we're hopeless, we're in the doldrums, we should resign, everything's going to blank in a handbasket anyways, let's just quit. And what I want to say is that is a great thought to have and it's true, but it's way too early to have it. Because we are waiting on a final, not election, we are waiting on a final political deliverer. We are waiting on something to break into this world and make things right. We are waiting on something to undo the mess of what's affecting the real lives that we live. It's just too soon and it's the wrong hope to put it on these cycles. And so, the question becomes, will I live in light of this kingdom and how these elections go? Because I feel that, man, I'm telling you. My bank account feels that. Or will I live in light of a different king and a different kingdom? One that will break in and one that has broken into me and one that has broken into us and one that does want to take ground little by little, not by killing its enemies and silencing its opponents, but by saving his enemies and adopting them to be part of his family. Will I be faithful to a better kingdom, whatever this world has, or will I live with my hopes and my life attached to this one? So we're going to look at kings here and we're going to look at the unfolding of this in the earthly realm. And I hope it creates a little more hope for a heavenly kingdom. 
because we're going to have really good kings. Yay! 40 years of awesome, followed by really awful kings. And the nation is thrown immediately back in, and we're just going to go through cycle after cycle after cycle of winning elections and losing elections. Good kings, bad kings. Good blessing, fortune, hard times and hard fortune, because it affects the real lives of people, what these kings do. And so why does Matthew want to make sure we understand Jesus is from David? Right? And so another one of those people that God intervenes in his life, meets him, and speaks a word to him. And the word that he speaks is a word of promise. Right? And so he, he talks at 1 Chronicles 17 is where you can mark down in your notes. 1 Chronicles 17, he comes to David, and he makes the covenant with David. And, he, and he's like, I swear to you that the right to rule, like, I won't leave you like I left Saul. The right to rule will come from the line. And so every ruler of God's people from here out has to be able to trace, do they have the blood of David flowing through their veins? And, but ultimately, what is the promise? Well, what the prophets pick up on, you, you know, you, you just sung in the song, like the rod of Jesse, and you're like, I don't know what that means. Well, that's language throughout the prophets talking about the Messiah, the, the, the David figure that's coming, right? And so why does it have to attach to David? Because one day, not just a son of David, but the son of David's gonna show up. The one anointed for the purposes of God, set apart to the special purposes of God to rule over the nations. Again, not this time, not this time, rule over them by squashing every enemy, this time rescuing enemies, rescuing them from the oppression of sin, rescuing them from slavery to sin, rescuing them back to a relationship to God. That's what he's going to be up to this time. And so the big theme, the true son of David, is the king, the king that is to come will rescue people from their greatest enemy, which is sin, and will return again to rescue them from everything else. And so that's the big theme. Let me just give you a couple of pictures. Like, see if, if these two kings, they kind of embody the rest of the kings. See if these two kings leave you thinking a political hope is on the horizon. So the first one we meet is a guy named Ahaz. Now I use him because his son's a certain son. Ahaz is probably the second worst king in all of Judah's history, the southern kingdom's history. Ahaz sets up idol worship all over. He leads the nation away from God and burns his son in the fire as an offering to a false god. This is Ahaz. And yet this is the one God comes to and is like, ask of me a sign because I'm not going to let Assyria take you out. Ask me a sign. And he won't. And he gets what we talked about last week. Emmanuel, the virgin-born son, will be Emmanuel. Well, that's Ahaz. Well, he has a son. And you know what his son's name is? Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is a rock star king. He doesn't just restore worship to God. He doesn't just do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He burns and destroys in a massive reform effort every high place, every other place of worship, every idol. He washes the land clean of everything that's defiling it and restores this true worship to God. And you're like, awesome, way to go, Hezekiah. It's hope again, right? The glory days are coming back. The kingdom's being restored. How awesome is this going to be? And then he has a son. Because, you know, we don't live forever. And we kind of lose the election this next time around. He has a son named Manasseh, the first worst king in all the history of Israel. 
who doesn't just restore idol worship, he starts building idols and altars within the temple itself. And he also has a son that he offers to the fire of a false god. Hope, despair, hope, despair. Real consequences because real armies take over and real economic damage happens and real danger happens. Hope, despair, hope, despair. Cycle after cycle after cycle. And you get to the end of it. In its darkest moment, and what happens? You're taken captive out of the land. Despair, despair, despair. So we go from the highest of hope, David establishing a kingdom that's almost fully the land that was promised, to being kicked out of the land that was promised after cycles of hope and despair and hope and despair and hope and despair. And so the question is, is God weak and absent from the world? Because all this bad stuff happens. Is God absent from the world? These guys are awful. Is God absent from the world? Things are definitely not going that great. So is this just the reality and we should get used to it? Despair? Is this a reality? We should just clamor to win the culture wars more. Let's get the election on track. Do we want to join the cycle that we just read through? Or is this an opportunity to say, I'm stepping out of the game. It's the wrong game. And I'm going to give my life for faithfulness to the true king. And I'm going to give my life to planting the goodness of the kingdom of the Lord wherever I go. And I'm going to make sure that's the reality I live in. Not this cycle of hope and despair. Third step. The era after the exile is the same old, same old until Jesus is born. It's just another set of names, most of which we don't know anything about. Another set of names that, that kind of just fade out into history, and some of them are really good. Zerubbabel is kind of the main one we know, and he goes with Ezra. You read about him in Ezra, and he's part of leading the first waves back into Israel out of the deportation. We're back in the land. Woo! Right? Yay! It's good. Now, we're not kings anymore. We're just, you know, there's an empire, and we're just kind of part of it. But, hey, we're back in the land. Things are good. And they... First thing they do when they get there is they build an altar to the Lord. They restore worship. And then Zerubbabel is part of of rebuilding the temple of God. Maybe God will dwell in the middle of his people again. Hope. And then you just read through the minor prophets, and it's the same thing. They do good, and they restore, and they build walls. And then they marry a bunch of foreign wives, spiritually speaking, not ethnically speaking, and their hearts are drawn from the Lord. And they come back, and they go away, and they come back, and they go away. Just read the minor prophets. And here we are at the doorstep where God goes quiet. For 400 years, there's no revelation. For 400 years, there's no prophet. For 400 years, yes, you have a book, but you don't have God actively speaking and acting to your knowledge yet. Going on, and God goes quiet. And do you blame him? Can you look back over your life and blame him for going quiet? Can you look back over the nation and blame him for going quiet? Nope. But the story isn't finished yet, right? Look at the last verse. And Jacob was the father of a guy named Joseph. And Joseph married a woman named Mary. And it's a different pattern, right? So you step in and look at it. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom feminine, right? Of of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And now all of a sudden there is a cry echoing out of a manger in Bethlehem. 
God's back. God's speaking again. God has intervened into the darkest and most hopeless time after all of the disillusionment of the ages. And a baby is born. And we're going to get introduced to him next week. Get introduced to him in a few verses if you read on. A baby is born to save people from their sin. Because if you see this kind of history with this kind of hope and this kind of despair and this kind of failure and this kind of gloom, if you see that with all of its ages unfolding, then you realize I don't need a king to get the nation right. We've had that. I need a savior to get me right. To him was born Jesus, the Christ. A few practical things as we, as we wrap up. Where do you see cynicism and disillusionment tempting to grab hold of your heart? Where do you see cynicism and disillusionment creep into your heart? Maybe it's your marriage. You're fighting about the same thing again. Maybe it's your singleness. That guy was a jerk. (laughs) Why did I go out on date one with him? Right? Maybe it's in your children. Wow, we have been enduring and investing for all these years. When will the harvest come? When will God get a hold of their life? Maybe it's work and jobs. Maybe it's the the difficulties of these years and and the the economic pressure it's put on your life. Like, where are you tempted to just give up? Like, go numb. Right? There's no quitting, so I'll just kind of quit quietly. Where are you tempted to go numb? Second, what are some of your biggest failures, and how have you let them define you or define God for you? Where are some of your biggest failures Because I guarantee you, if you have not dealt with them redemptively, when you look back at them, they still have a defining influence on how you view yourself. They still have a defining influence on who God is in your mind. And so pull those suckers up. Jesus was born. You can pull those suckers up, and you can look at them in the face and say, but Jesus, but the Christ came, but a better king and a better kingdom came. So, so stare at them. Don't let them define you. Don't let them define God either. Last one. How do worldly circumstances tempt you to fear or frustration? How do wor- worldly circumstances tempt you to fear and frustration? My car didn't need a new engine. Praise God. But my car took $4,000 of work this week to try to get it drivable again. <laughs> that tempts me to frustration. Right? I didn't have that money lying around thinking, I want to go into your car. I had other names for that money. You know, I am trying to remain thankful that we we can come up with it, right? But where where am I tempted to fear? Like, what is that gonna mean? What is that gonna mean a year from now? What is that gonna mean when the next kid goes to college? What is that gonna mean when I need a new car? What is that gonna mean? What is that gonna mean? What is it gonna mean? Where are we tempted to fear and frustration? Because the world is filled with fallen stuff. Second question on that, how does Christmas encourage you to hope? If I can pull my hope off the world and get my eyes on a different hope, it can reframe the world I live in. It can reframe the condition of my heart, if nothing else. And so, through a long and sordid line, God keeps his promises. Through the impossibility of dealing with people, God keeps his promises, and he opens up the way of redemption for people just like you and just like me. 
in just like the most lost and extreme of lostness places we could ever go. He opens up redemption. And he does it through a baby being born in a manger. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, thank you that our hope is eternal and not temporal. Thank you that you have won and triumphed in the cross and resurrection. Thank you that you are the God of hope and this world is not it. This world doesn't get the final story. Politics doesn't get to win. Jesus wins. Thank you that we are reminded that Jesus will break into this world again and he'll put the entire universe's government upon his shoulders and he'll establish a kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice forever and forever and forever. God, if we could just have this hope, this blessed hope that's on Jesus, we'd be purified. God, set our hopes on this hope. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, have you bowed to this king? Have you come away from your religion? Have you come away from your church background you're trusting in, away from the moral um, things that you've done all your life that you think make you good? And have you come to this king, born in a manger, grew up and died on a cross, rose again from the dead? Have you, have you take, come to him, I am a sinner? Have you come to him to take your sin from you and forgive you? Have you come? If not, there's a great opportunity. Let's pray together. There's a great opportunity. Fill out that sheet in your bulletin. Let us talk to you about that. Don't let it pass. If he's pursuing you now, don't let it pass. If this story that is eternity years old is, is finding a point in your heart right now, don't let it pass. Or maybe for you, it's just a little bit of hope that's needed. It's a little bit of undoing the cynicism of your heart that's needed. It's a little bit of putting your cares on him for he cares for you that's needed. Come do that. Right? Come do that right here. However you need to respond. Let's stand together and sing and you respond how the Lord is leading you.
So, Father, as we go, we go with the hope of this baby born, living, and dying. We go with the hope that you are a good king who welcomes the outcast and welcomes the sinner. We go with the hope to offer that you will restore lives. And so, God, I pray that as we go, we would go with hearts on mission, the mission of our king, rescuing people for himself. In Jesus' name, amen.